marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the Coin Podcast Network. How do you take a product that was sold in an illicit market and in a very short amount of time create a system that makes it fair, consistent, trackable, and most importantly, safe? This week, I speak with those tasked to regulate the recreational cannabis industry in our state, the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. What did it take to create a comprehensive seed-to-sales system and why the regulation of cannabis is so very important to our safety and economy? You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. This episode, I sit down with two guests from the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. T.J. Sheehy, Director of Analytics and Research, and Mark Pettinger, Director of Communications and Education. So how would you describe the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission to someone who's unfamiliar with it? They may have heard of the OLCC, but how would you explain what you do? Well, I'll start uh, by saying, you know, we're the agency that regulates adult use cannabis and adult consumption of alcohol beverages and provides the state with its distilled spirits, the revenues of which from the marijuana program and the distilled spirits program go to fund state programs. In the case of distilled spirits, that money is in in lieu of taxes, which would otherwise be needed to pay and support those programs. Anyway, so the ARC is, you know, we regulate a couple of adult use industries. And then I don't want to forget, we want to tuck in that our agency is also responsible for compliance with Oregon's iconic bottle bill. A lot of people sort of mistakenly think that there may be an environmental agency that's responsible for compliance, but in fact, it falls to us. And so what that means is that if a retailer isn't abiding by the 
law and taking in bottles and cans that have a redemption value that, you know, we do an investigation and make sure that they're in compliance. We also listen to consumers who may have concerns or complaints about the bottle bill as well. So we cover quite a few things of, of importance and I think of interest to Oregonians. TJ? Yeah, that's a good comprehensive overview of what we do. I mean, the only thing I'd add of relevance to, to this discussion on the cannabis side specifically is we've really evolved, I think, at the OLCC of what our primary mission was at the outset of legalization and what our role has morphed into now, although there's still a lot of commonality. When we first launched, the primary concerns were number one, access by youth to cannabis, and number two, the federal landscape and making sure that the state would be allowed to run a legal cannabis market. And so those were the two primary touch points. The access by youth and, and those concerns are very much still central, but I would say the federal pieces have become less central. We still do the same things we do, but that's less of an overriding, overarching concern just because it's evolved so much. We were the third state to legalize and it was still questionable of whether the feds would come swooping in or not. Now you have California, New York, Massachusetts, it's taken root in a lot of ways. And so that the conversation has now shifted to federal legalization and away from can states even do it. Uh, so our focus has, I think, shifted more towards we have an established market. How do we make sure that this evolving market is a place where consumers can find safe quality products? Uh, and so consumer safety, I think, has taken a much more central role uh, in a lot of different things that we do than we anticipated in, in 2015 or 2016. Measure 91 passes in November of 2014. What regulatory framework was the OLCC tasked to put in place for recreational sales? And how long did it take before you fully take over the recreational retail market in Oregon? So our charge was to basically to stand up or establish an adult use regulated market that would allow the entry of businesses at, you know, at the producer, wholesaler, processor, lab, and retail levels, while at the same time providing access to adult use customers. You know, so after Measure 91 was approved by voters and going into 2015, one of the things the agency did first was, even though it wasn't necessarily within the agency's responsibility, is that it began to work with a communications agency, the Metropolitan Group, to develop an awareness campaign about public use laws because public possession laws actually changed July 1 of 2015, right? That's when folks could walk down the street with cannabis on their person without fear of being arrested or, you know, cited and, and released by law enforcement. Beyond that, what the agency was focusing on was developing a contract to have a licensing system created because this was, you know, this is rather new, rather novel, only at that point, only Washington and Colorado had had any experience with this. And so there weren't a lot of companies that were, or businesses that were focused on that type of work at the time. I mean, there are certainly more entrants now that it's become, you know, both more lucrative, more viable, and uh, doesn't have any, have the stigmas that it used to have even six or seven years ago. So preceding our agency's work, though, was an effort by the legislature to allow 
cannabis consumers to access those products sooner than we were going to be able to be in position. And the way to do that was to utilize the state's existing Oregon medical marijuana program dispensaries around the state. And so on October 1st of 2015, that's when early start sales uh, began for Oregonians to purchase limited amounts. At the time, it was a limited amount of flour. Uh, I'm trying to think of flour. So TJ, what was it? it? Was flour, seeds, oh, and plants, right? I think it was flour, seeds, and plants was what you could get. No tinctures, no edibles, nothing along those lines. And I think the reason why is that up until that point, there really was sort of haphazard, non-uniform testing and standards of cannabis. That's October of 2015. On January, I think it was January 2nd of um, of 2016, we flipped the switch on our licensing system. That went up. We had a couple of pop-up uh, groups within our agency that were there to help people as they were, you know, beginning to apply. We'd also had uh, previous to that in December, I think the November, December timeframe of 2015, we'd done some road shows around the state to get people interested. There were a lot of people coming out to kind of kick the tires about what this new industry was going to be about. So we did a lot of that work. And then as we moved into 2015, the first half of 2015, we did more outreach. Dispensary, medical marijuana dispensary started serving on October 1 of 2015. Going into 2016, we had the licensing system turn on. And then uh, we issued our first licenses to growers. Uh, I think there are about eight or nine producers who were issued licenses in April of 16. And then we flipped the switch on adult use retail within the OLCC system on October 1st of 2016. And then sales at OMMP dispensaries began to fade because they had to sunset and be done by December 31st of 2016. And in the months preceding and then the months right after, there was a significant migration of dispensaries from the OMMP program over to the OLCC program, where in addition to being able to sell adult use cannabis, they were also allowed to sell under the right circumstances and the right licensing configuration. They were able to sell uh, medical grade products for folks who'd been buying medical grade at OMMP stores. So timeline, well, that's a good two years right there, right? In terms of either indirect or direct involvement, but it's it's remained an iterative process uh, that continues to this day. And, and I'll let TJ pick it up there. Yeah, well, Mark mentioned the iterative process. I mean, the other thing I'd add is there wasn't a stable foundation on which to build based on Measure 91. Measure 91 passed in November of 2014. And in the next legislative session, that six-month session that started in January of 2015, there was a super committee created, a joint House and Senate committee that rewired the system based on the ballot initiative, but made some fundamental changes, including changing the tax structure, introducing that early start sales, those sorts of things. And a lot of those things were were foundational and important. Like Mark mentioned, there was the legalization of possession and consumption of marijuana without the associated supply chain, legal supply chain of marijuana. And so I think there was a a big eye in that super committee session on how do you create a system that is workable, achievable in the timeline, those sorts of things, while also making sure that we're not growing the illicit market as opposed to establishing a legal illicit market. But instead of having from November 2014, 
until January of 2016, when we were obligated by the ballot measure to accept applications. We actually had like June or July of 2015 <laughs> until January of 2016, because that's when all the legislation was passed and we knew what targeting. And that was one session that super committee stuck around for 2015, then 2016 and 2017 would change as each session. And so that was the iterative process and, and it still continues today. But that was very much kind of the, we said a lot, you know, build the plane as you fly it. That's that's really what it was. I think we successfully took the plane off and haven't crashed yet, but it's been uh, sometimes by the skin of our teeth, I think. The OLCC is responsible for so many different areas of the recreational cannabis market from seed to sale. Can you tell me what touch points the OLCC has in the entire process from they've planted a seed or a clone to I'm getting a bag with a receipt and I'm walking out the door of a retail establishment? Where are all the areas that the OLCC works with or is responsible for? Sure. And and luckily, we do have a seed to sale tracking system that allows us to have this this peek in and create that closed loop system that our rules require because we do have not just everything having to operate within the state there can't be any touch points out of state right but also it can only happen within the licensed system so you can't just have someone growing their four plants at home and supplying a retailer with that the walls are up it's a closed loop system so we have a seed to sale tracking system that helps create those checks and balances within that system the sort of general flow throughout the system is you plant your seeds or probably more often you take your clones. Um, so you take a cutting off of a plant because with cannabis, there's there's male and there's female, but you only want female because uh, you don't want to create seeds. And also the female plants are, are what you actually get the flower from that you sell and then consume. Um, so the genetic clone that you can get by taking a cutting off of it helps ensure that you're getting a female of the same quality and everything else. So a producer will propagate a plant that gets entered into this into the tracking system, or they can receive it from someone else. They could receive clones and seeds from another producer or wholesale or something like that. But either way, if it's their own material or coming from someone within the system, it's documented as being received or documented as being taken from another plant to create that chain of custody. At that point, it it grows and it matures. At a certain point, once it reaches a certain height, it has to have an RFID tag associated with it, which gives it its unique ID. And so that's now the plant that you track. And from there, you you harvest it, presumably, or maybe it dies and you waste it. All of that has to be recorded so that there's accountability of what's happening to the various plants. You harvest it, and that's the, the, the first major decision point by a producer. Do I want to sell it as flour to be consumed as usable marijuana? So that's either the flour or the shake, which, which mm-hmm. is the leaves, uh, and things like pre-rolls. Uh, so that's sort of choice number one. Producer wants to sell it to a retailer or sell it to a wholesaler or whatever and keep it as flour. Before they're able to sell it, though, they have to test it. And so if it's going to be sold as usable marijuana, they have to test it for potency, pesticides, moisture content, and water activity. Those are the, the requirements right now, at least. Different states differ on what's required, and Oregon is actually going to be introducing additional tests like heavy metals and micro contaminants. 
But for right now, those are the tests that are required. And so it has to pass those tests before it can move past that gatepost. The other option is instead of selling it as flour, they could sell it to a processor to make a process value-added product. And so they could sell it to a processor to make an extract or a concentrate for something like a vape product. The extracted product itself could be used in an edible, topical, a tincture, those sorts of things. So what I've always been surprised at is how diverse the product offerings are for cannabis. It's not pre-rolls, right? That is definitely a, a large segment of the market, but there's a huge amount of diversity in the types of ways that, that products are sold and purchased at retail. Um, so there's a, a whole litany of options of what can be done with the cannabis if you go the processing route. But if you go that route, it also has to be tested. It is probably more complicated than it's worth to talk about here, but, but the main pieces. Uh, as before, potency, pesticides, solvents in the case of extracts. So making sure that the product is labeled correctly so that consumers know what they're buying and, and they're safe for those uses. Uh, and then it'll end its way to retail. All along the way, the transfers and the processing have been tracked in that seed-to-sale tracking system as it changes type or it gets repackaged or, or split up or merged and whatever else. And then when it gets to retail, uh, it's received by the retailer, it's sold to the consumer, and out the door it goes. You're also responsible for ensuring that a retail establishment is not selling cannabis to minors, right? Minor decoy. So we do that on alcohol. We'll go to convenience stores, bars, restaurants, those sorts of things. And it's a minor under 21 who has their real ID. So they are under 21. Their ID says that they're under 21. Uh, and they check to see if someone will sell them something. We do the same thing on marijuana. Although we've taken, at least on the marijuana side, because of COVID, that program has gone dormant, although it's it's starting back up. And we actually got authorization from the legislature. Instead of using volunteer minors like we used to have to rely on, uh, we've gotten authority from the legislature to do what they do in Washington, which is hire minors to basically have that be something they do on a regular basis so that we can make sure that we have adequate numbers, because that's the problem we've had is having enough of the, the minors volunteer to be able to do this reliably so that people are on their best behavior. Uh, but, but yes, we have historically done that and are, are ramping that back, back up. Back to something you touched on earlier in the discussion, how does the federal Schedule One controlled substances status of cannabis affect what the OLCC does? And you already hinted that now it maybe doesn't affect it as much as when you first started. Well, when we first started regulating cannabis, there wasn't a lot, there weren't a lot of guidelines other than what was known as the Cole Memorandum or the Cole Memo, which was a Department of Justice memo that kind of put in place the essentially the hands-off, no-touch posture of the federal government as related to state adult use and, and medical use cannabis programs. And that stayed in stayed in place until the previous presidential administration when Attorney General uh, Sessions rescinded the Cole memo. But what in effect it did up until that point, and I think the boundaries by which states were following in the, those guidelines and playing within continued even after it was rescinded, were to ensure that, that cannabis didn't get into the hands of kids, that it wasn't controlled by cartels or gangs, which is kind of interesting because we've had our uh, issue of, with cartels growing illegally in Southern Oregon uh, for the last year or so, you know, to make sure that it was regulated, that it wasn't leaking into the illegal market. So there were a number of points of the coal memo that served as sort of a as guideposts for uh, our agency to, to set that up. 
think one of the challenges has remained because of the the federal of the Schedule One status is that it has made the business environment challenging because it's essentially a competitive non-competitive business. And by that, I mean, cannabis businesses are not allowed to take 280E business deductions for, um, you know, for their cost of doing business the way any other industry uh, can. Now, that might be okay when you're just talking about cannabis itself, but cannabis businesses need to pay wages, they need to pay for electricity, they need to pay for water, they need to pay for fertilizer, and they need to pay for irrigation, for transport. Name any other agricultural product that is legal, uh, they they generally have to pay for the same stuff. So that's, that's complicated things. And I think the other issue around the rescind, rescinding of, of uh, the coal memo is that when that took place at that point, I think there was such a critical mass in terms of states or that had adult use or medical use cannabis that it was almost too difficult for the federal government to sort of put the genie back in the bottle. Now, I think where the federal government flexed its muscle was that, and this is an issue that, you know, we still face, you know, these days in many states where adult use is is legal, is that you've got border states where it's not legal. And in the case of Colorado, there were, you know, sort of these um, borders where where marijuana was coming into Kansas uh, from Colorado or to some of the other border states where it was not allowed. And so that really, really made it difficult for those companies that were operating under that environment, right? Because then the federal government sort of flexed and threatened to come in and do all sorts of stuff. And states attorney generals of those border states threatened to sue and so on and so forth. So that's, that's complicated things. But I think one of the things that was quite evident among conservative politicians was that that those that weren't necessarily tied to a, a social viewpoint or outlook of being anti-cannabis saw the jobs and growth, economic growth, and the tax revenue potentials of cannabis. And that began to sort of mitigate within sort of the, that conservative bulwark that was sort of sort of been blocking progress to national federalization, you know, began to to rattle that a little bit more to the point where there's uh, even legislation that's been introduced by a, a House member from South Carolina to, you know, address cannabis, to allow states to do what they're doing, but not to force it on other states that don't want it, to set a federal tax and so on. And that's in addition to what, you know, a number of proposals that Democrats as a party or more liberal politicians as a whole have been kind of move, trying to move forward. But Schedule One has complications. Um, you know, it doesn't allow for interstate commerce. There are challenges that exist because of it. In the relatively short time that the OLCC has been tasked with regulating recreational cannabis, what are you most proud of as an organization? Well, uh, TJ, let me, let me go first and I'll let you kind of act. I'll, cause I'll, I'll take that arc you know, for our agency as a whole, because I think what we've done on the cannabis side has allowed us to become more effective on the alcohol side. And by that, I mean the word pivot has been used a lot during the pandemic. But let's just say flexibility and uh, change gears 
you know, before pivot became expressions. That's what we did on the cannabis side in order to accommodate the industry, to help it to grow, to readjust our rules, uh, to be more considerate of things from the licensee's perspective that maybe we hadn't uh, anticipated or thought of as we developed those rules. And that actually helped us uh, as an agency when we went into the pandemic of kind of giving flexibility to our bars and restaurants, to distillers, to brewers in our state to do the work that they do to still make a living where social distancing and uh, restrained commerce was in place. So I think what our, our agency, I mean, we're the third largest revenue generator in the state when you combine both alcohol and cannabis. And that's pretty significant. And, and it's work because, you know, we haven't taken a state agency mentality to the work that we do. The stereotype, I should say. I mean, we've been real flexible and have done lots of things to make both the alcohol, hospitality industry work and survive during the pandemic as well as the cannabis during the industry during the pandemic, as well as launching the cannabis industry. What has been and may still be the biggest challenge that the OLCC faces and and how is it being addressed? I think part of it has been, you know, this industry is in its, is still, maybe it's not in its infancy, but it's evolving and moving quickly and rapidly like anything that's entrepreneurial. The challenge we've had is is keeping up really. We're not a, a, a public corporation like the lottery or safe in that we can, you know, quickly, more quickly hire people or get the tools that we need in order to service the industry. And so, you know, there's a little bit of a lag and sometimes that's understandably frustrating for the industry because they've got capital tied up, they've got contracts tied up, they've got leases tied up. And, you know, we've had to move really quickly and we were overwhelmed at the onset. I think the interest in in becoming a part of the cannabis industry was much greater than we ever had contemplated. So, I would say being able to to be close or proximate to the to the industry in terms of the evolution is kind of key. One other example I can give you, and um, and I'll transition to TJ, is that I mean a, a good example is we're becoming more of a consumer product agency. If you look back at the Valley vaping crisis of of almost two years ago now, you know we had to step in into an area that wasn't you know what we were we were originally tasked with, but you know the evolution of the industry, the evolution of the product offerings, it's much more complex. And so those are things that we need to be aware of. Another another example would be the, the emergence of Delta 8 THC, where we've had to kind of step in and lend our voice to that discussion because, you know, that meant that kids were able to essentially access uh, THC products in, a, in an environment where their parents or the retailers may have been unsuspecting. Yeah. And so Mark spoke to the big challenge we had that I think we've largely resolved of constantly playing catch up and chasing our tail uh, in the launch of the system. But I think prospectively, the biggest remaining challenge yet to be addressed or solved completely is how do you treat cannabis writ large in a regulatory environment? In other words, how do you treat hemp in comparison to marijuana and vice versa? At the federal level, the 2018 Farm Bill legalized hemp with a basically a no-touch regulatory framework. You can grow as much of it as you want. You can export it in and out of state. There's no labeling standards uh, in the general market. And you can do all that as long as it tests below 0.3% in the field. But there are a lot of loopholes with that. And there's no 
financing mechanism to really create a regulatory framework so that people can actually enforce those rules and laws. That is in, it's a major juxtaposition with marijuana where it has to be sold in state and everything else. And so what that does is it creates incentives for people to grow quote unquote hemp, but it's actually marijuana and use the cover of hemp to export that out of state and get a lot more money for your marijuana in the Midwest or back East than you can get from marijuana in the license system in Oregon. And so I think there's still a lot of discussions to be had in the state and nationally around what is the future of cannabis and how do they relate one to another so that you really have some degree of convergence so that there can be a sensible framework for cannabis overall, rather than having such a gulf between hemp and marijuana. I want to thank both of you for joining me today. TJ Sheehy and Mark Pettinger of the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. It has been a pleasure. Travis, thanks for having us. Mainstream Media. In previous episodes, we have talked about the social justice aspect of cannabis reform. We've discussed the medical benefits and risks, the push for federal cannabis reform, and the comprehensive regulation of the cannabis market here in Oregon. On the next episode, we talk about the money. How big could Oregon's cannabis economy become? Could foreign investors take over? What does the Oregon market look like if we see federal reform? It's the economics of cannabis on the next Mainstream Media on the Coin Podcast Network.